Well, good morning, Vintage Church. It's so good to see all of you. How are you all doing this morning? I am so excited to be here with you as we close out the last uh, sermon, our, our last day of this year as we look forward into the new year as we tackle our new series today, Year of the Bible. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Daniel. I'm one of the staff pastors here. Uh, I have the privilege of heading up uh, Vintage Christian Academy uh, Monday through Friday. That's what I do, and I'm also uh, one of the, the staff pastors here, and I just couldn't be more excited to get to kick off this new series with you this morning. Before we get to that, I want to talk really quickly about our prayer and fasting that we have coming up a week from today uh, on January 7th at sundown through Wednesday. I encourage you, if you are a member here especially, I encourage you to take part in this. If you're someone who this is your first time coming, I invite you to take part in it uh, as well with us. What we're trying to do is we're trying to cover this church and every person in it in prayer over a 72-hour period, a three-day fasting period. And the reason that we want to do that is we want to be able to provide, uh, we, we want you guys to see the effects of prayer, and we also want to provide spiritual covering for uh, this church as we go into the new year. Scripture says that that prayer and fasting are, are powerful. It's, it talks about it um, in Matthew chapter 6. You can go look up what it has to say there, but I want to invite you into being a part of that, and I want you to invite you uh, to see what your life is going to look like when you take the time uh, to participate in it. I promise it does things in your own life first. That's how God works. He works in us and then through us, right? That's uh, how he works. So I invite you to be a part of that. Uh, you can sign up by scanning that QR code today. So we're talking about in this new series, as we look ahead at the new year, we're talking about, okay, uh, the year of the Bible. We're talking about what Scripture does in our lives. We're talking about how it speaks to us. We're going to go through how it connects with us. But today, we're going to start with how it instructs us, because that is its purpose, is the Bible is about God, but it's written, it's a tool for you. It's not about you, but it is for you to use as a tool. Who knows that in this world, we find a lot of craziness going on all around us all the time. It's every day there's another news story. Every day there's something crazier than the last thing, something that you thought, no way this would ever happen. And you just think, when is it going to get less crazy? And the answer is, it's not. So good luck, right? It's not going to get less crazy. The fact is that we live in a world with a lot of chaos and, and, and an incredible amount of uncertainty. You have economic uncertainty and political uncertainty, and you, you probably have uncertainty about your neighbor's name, right? You don't know uh, the people that live around you like we used to know them. There's a lot of things that are going on that are not certain in the world, and it can feel overwhelming, and we feel like we're losing control. And the truth is that when you don't know what you don't know, you should go back to what you do know, right? You should circle back and look at what Scripture has to say in the Word of God. When you don't know What's going to happen? You don't know all this crazy stuff. You don't even know the things that you don't know because they haven't happened yet. You didn't know that uh, we were going to go through a crazy period starting with COVID and all these lockdowns and mandates and all this stuff. And you didn't know that that was going to happen. And you didn't know that your job was going to uh, shut down. And you didn't know all of these things. And you don't know what's going to happen this year either, right? But here's what we do know. We do know that the word of God is reliable. We know that we can base our lives on it. Jesus says that if you build your house upon his commandments, right, it's like a house that's built on rock. It can't be shaken when the storm comes. And so in the midst of the craziness, I'm inviting you as you look at this new year to look at the word of God and make it your firm foundation. 
foundation to fill your everyday life with it so that you are equipped and ready to go out into the craziness of the world. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. The truth is that if you're a believer, you will never run out of things you need from this book. You will never run out of the things that you need to get from reading the scripture. You'll never run out of things that you'll learn when you keep reading it. You never stop growing through the word of God because God's thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are higher than your ways. And the Bible helps you see into God's perspective and use it as a lens to view the world as God views it. So as we look at this year and we look about how uh, the Bible instructs us, we have to understand that we live in a time that is not willing to allow us to believe this without conflict. And you never will, right? What I mean by that is that you live in a world that is hostile to the Christian faith. You live in a world that is hostile to the Bible, that the ways of the world are not your ways. We are a kingdom upside down. We are different than the way that the world does things. You need to understand that. Why? Because people are going to attack this book. They're going to try and uproot the foundations that you have laid. They're going to try and convince you that this book is not reliable, right? We're going to talk this morning about some defenses uh, for Scripture and why we know that it can be trusted. Because the truth is that Scripture can be trusted. The Bible can be trusted. People will tell you that it can't be, but let me tell you about this book very, very briefly. And there's some great resources I want to, I'll talk about briefly here that you guys can go check out on your own. The Bible can be trusted um, in a way that no other historical document, if you look at it just as a historical document, it can be trusted in ways that nothing else can be. This book has 40 different authors, kings, priests, farmers, lawyers, fishermen, over a 1,500-year period, three languages, three continents, and it's the best-selling book every year since it's been written, right? There are more copies of this book, more manuscripts of this text than any other book, and it's not even close. We'll talk about that more here in a second. It's incredible right? This is, as a historical document, the most reliable thing that has ever been produced. So why do people oppose it? Well, there's a couple of reasons. There's two different categories I want to give you. There's an intellectual category to oppose scripture, and then there's a heart category, right? And so some people, they come from a background where they don't know the word, they haven't been taught the word. How could they know it if they haven't heard it, right? How could they understand the things if they hadn't been given them to them? Right? So there's an intellectual understanding. Maybe they were raised in a, in a different faith or they were raised as an atheist which, atheist, which, by the way, it takes a lot of years of uh, indoctrination to be an atheist. Right? If you want to know more about that, you can talk to me in the guest suite after service. Right? But it takes a lot of years of indoctrination to teach people not to believe their own eyes, which are right in front of them, which is what you find when you see the Word of God. Right? And the truth is that uh, people will have some intellectual disagreements, but I would say that the vast majority of what people really have is what they have is they have a condition in their heart where they don't want to hear what Scripture has to say. And the things that they put up are not defenses for anything other than them remaining in the position that they are in because they don't want to submit to the Word of God. What they want is that they want to be the God of their life. They want to be on the throne of their own life, and they don't want to have to deal with it, right? And so they use these things as defenses, why is the most accurate historical document in the history of the world, which is scripture, looked down upon by people who got their degree from TikTok University? Because they want to not believe it. Because it says something about them that's hard. And it says something about me that's hard, which is that I am broken and on my own, I am not enough. I am in need of a savior. And because it says that about me, that's hard pill for me to swallow. But if I do, and I accept it, 
My life will be forever changed. And in fact, they don't want other people to know it because then there will be more people walking around changed and people will see and believe. And in fact, that's the entire history of the church. The entire history of the church is a testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ was exactly who he said he was, that the word of God is true and that there is a God and that you are not him. But when you submit to him and believe in him, you will find eternal life. So I'm going to talk really quickly about three common objections to the reliability and the authority of Scripture. So three common things I want to talk about this morning so that you can be ready to give a defense because each and every one of you who is a believer that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he died on the cross, rose from the dead to give you and me life forever, each and every one of you is called to the work of ministry. All right, what do I mean by that? I mean that it's not me who's going to be able to reach all of the people that you can reach. My job as someone in ministry is to equip you to go out and reach people. You are the church. The church is not just me and Pastor Stephen and our team. The church is you. The church is you, each and every one of you, called into a relationship with God where you get to go out every day and reach people and live your life the way so that people will see it, so that you can speak the word and so that you can go out and know how to defend it. Each and every one of you has to be equipped because you have to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's within you. You have to be prepared, right? And so my job this morning is I want to try and equip you with some basic things. Now, there's a couple of resources I'm going to mention here. One is uh, the case for Christ in the Case for Faith series by Lee Strobel. I highly recommend you check it out. The other thing is, and this is a big one, um, there is a resource out there, our Year of the Bible resources. Those will help you uh, as we go throughout this series. We have some really good stuff. Some of the videos that go along with that I'll talk about here in a second, but it's really good stuff for you to get started so that you can be able to defend as you get deeper and deeper into the Word of God. But here are three oppositions that people will throw. One is the Bible condones wickedness. That means that it approves things that are wrong. Historical and textual criticisms, criticisms, and then translation and transmission errors. I want to start with the condoned wickedness, right? So people will come and they will say that the Bible condones wickedness. They will say that Scripture approves of what is wrong. And there's two different categories for this, right? So there's two different ways I want to separate this. They'll say that the Bible approves of what is evil. And they'll say that it does it actively and it does it passively, all right? Let me talk about the passive one for a second. What they're really saying is that they're saying, okay, there's a God, you're saying that because of this Bible, this Bible says that there is a God and he is good, which is what this word says. It says that there is a God and that he is good. How can there be a God who is good if the wickedness that is found within the text exists? How can there be a God that is good if the evil in the world occurs every day and we see it in the brutality of what we face? We all know that the world is filled with evil. And they look at that, and the truth is that they're, they're wrestling with that greater question, right? They're wrestling with this question of how can there be good and evil? And so people will come to the conclusion, they will say, there cannot be a good God because there is an evil world. How can the atrocities and genocides that we see in the course of history happen if there is a good God? And the tr truth is that that is what I call a self-defeating argument. It's a self-defeating argument because it appeals to a standard. It appeals to a standard of what is evil. So they're saying, evil things happen. Okay, well, they are then admitting that there is something in the world that is called evil, right? And so if there is something that is evil, then they're saying, because there's something evil, we measure that against what? Well, our standard for what we would say is good. So we're measuring evil against our standard for what's good. And so if we're measuring this as evil, and we're saying that there is then a standard for what is good, because there cannot be evil without good. If they're upset about the evil things, and then that means that they think there should be good things. 
And so if they believe that there's a standard for what is good, then that standard has to come from somewhere that's objective, which has to come from a God who stands outside and sets the standard, right? So by their own admission, they're appealing to a God. And they might say, well, maybe it's some other God, but it's certainly not this God. And that's when they get into the active phase. They say, well, okay, maybe there is good and evil, and maybe there's a God that sets a standard, but it certainly can't be the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible allows some pretty awful things to happen. I don't know if you've read it, but this is not a PG book. When I read my son, the story of David and Goliath, I get to it and he's like, man, he got Goliath, he got him. My son's three, one of them, my older one. So my son's three. But I don't really go into, yeah, and then David cut his head off and held it up for everyone to see. But it's true. It's true, but it's not, it's not PG, right? So pretty, pretty brutal things have happened in Scripture. Um, even worse than that, you'll find things in there. And so they'll say, okay, well, that's, it can't be this God because even if there is a standard, even if there is a standard for good and evil and there's a God that sets that or some higher power they like to deflect to, which is the postmodernist view, that's their way of saying, I don't want to talk about this. They'll say, it can't be this God because this God approves of some pretty evil things in that book. The truth is God doesn't approve of those things. You have to know the place for each book written in each time. So there are points in, which, in the scripture where uh, things happen and us recording them is not a, a tacit approval of the fact that they happened. It's just a recording of it, right? This happened. Saying that this happened doesn't mean that you approve that it happened. Now, there are also things that you might wrestle with because there are times when God tells the nation of Israel, he says, you need to go kill those people, all right? And that's when you get into, can the potter say to the clay, or can the clay say to the potter, why did you do this? Basically, what I'm saying is that there's a God that is good, and it's evident that he's good, and if they try to argue that he's not, then it's a self-defeating argument. And then they look at this book, and they try and take it out of context because they don't know how it's been written. Because it's been written over 1,500 years with 40 authors over the course of period, and it all tells one story, but in that story, different books have different purposes. The Psalms, many of them are meant to be Psalms of poetry. There are books of prophecy. There are books of wisdom that give principles for life. There are books that record historical events. You need to know which is which. And you need to know that never does God approve of evil. In fact, remember that God is the standard for what is good. And so he cannot approve what is evil because he is the standard for what is good. Right? So that is the first defense because they say, well, the Bible condones wickedness. That's a foolish argument. Right? The Bible actually gives you the standard for what is good to begin with. Judges 21, 25 says, all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is not an approval. This is a good example. I'm, I pulled this text so that you can look at this. It says, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. This is the period of Judges. People are going crazy. And the Bible is saying, everyone was just doing what they thought was right. It was anarchy. But it's not saying that was good. What's good is for you to, to taste and see that the Lord is good and follow in his ways. The second argument against uh, scripture that people will make is historical and textual criticisms, right? So they will come in and they'll say, okay, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like the way that, uh, you know, this psalm describes God. It doesn't seem scientifically accurate or historically accurate. And you're like, well, if you take a poem and you take the artistic work in that poem and you expect it to be translated literally, you're going to be disappointed because you don't understand the purpose of the thing, right? When, uh, you have small children, right? 
they, they draw pictures, right? And my son's pictures aren't very good, right? But if you have kids, we'll have students at our school and they'll draw pictures and, you know, anybody ever seen, you know, their kid draws their mom or their dad as a superhero. And what they're, what they're not saying is I literally believe that you jump off of buildings. What they're saying is that I look up to who you are, right? And I look up to that and I, and I think about that image of you. If you don't have the discernment to read the text and realize that there are passages in Scripture that are written in a way that serves a purpose that is not uh, exact historical documentation, then you're going to be disappointed. Now, the things that the Bible records as historically true, those things are true. And it's actually the most verifiable document in history. But people will critique the Bible because they don't understand its point. And they don't understand that the points of the prophecies are to tell of the coming Christ. They don't understand that the point of the scripture is to point towards the Messiah. And they don't understand how four different people could have written four different accounts of the life of Jesus and they would look differently because they don't understand that things can harmonize together and that they were written for different audiences in different times with different points. In the same way, that when I go to different people and I tell my testimony, I will spend time focusing on different things that God has done in my life. That's what the gospel writers do, right? Why? Because some were written for the Romans, right? Some, Luke was written as a, as a historical account, right? They were written to a different audience. And so they spend time focusing on different things that were all true, but that as they're recording the life of Jesus, they're putting it into a book. They're choosing to focus on different aspects of things. Why? To tell the story to the audience even though it's all the same story. So I've told my testimony uh, to different groups of people and I'll go and I'll focus on different things that God has done because it's the most beneficial to the group that I'm talking to, right? And I can't condense everything that God has done in my life because God has done so much good for me. I could not tell you everything that he has done. But what I can do is I can tell you about the things that I think will help it make sense for you right now. That's what the gospel writers do. But postmodernists will come in and they'll try and critique that. They'll try and take it and make it into something that it's not. They'll try and intentionally misread it, right? And then they'll present it to other people in order to deceive them so that they will not know what Scripture has to say. They'll try and deconstruct it. You'll see a lot of this. Christian, you need to be on the defense when people say they're in the process of deconstructing their faith. What they mean is, I'm trying to pull apart the things that the Word has to say and put them back together in a way that I like. That's what the de- is at the heart of the deconstruction movement. When people say, oh, I'm just deconstructing my faith. No, you don't deconstruct the faith. What you do is you read the word of God, you submit to it, right? And if you do not understand it, you pray and you ask for wisdom. You pray and you ask for understanding. You seek to understand what God has to say. You don't pull out the pieces that you don't get, right? In fact, when you don't get things, you wrestle with them. That's what Israel means, by the way. Israel, the name Israel that God gives to Jacob, is after he, he wrestles and he says, your name's going to be Israel because you're going to wrestle with God, right? And so it's okay. You don't need to be afraid of those things. You don't need to walk in this building and think that because I don't understand something and because I have doubt, I can't be in this place with these people. That's a lie from the enemy. The truth is that because you are wrestling with those things, but you're seeking after this relationship with God, you're seeking to understand. You walk with him even when you're wrestling with things that you might not get. And you say, God, I submit to you because your word says this and I don't get it, but I'm going to obey anyway and I'm going to keep walking faithfully. That's what scripture says. Scripture says that we're okay to wrestle with God. The enemy wants to tell you that you can't do that. You know why? Because this book has so much growth in it that you will never be done with it. And so if you're never going to be done with it, then he knows you'll always be wrestling for that next stage of growth. They're called growing pains for a reason. They're uncomfortable. You walk through them. 
And as you walk through them, God grows you. And as you grow, the enemy says, well, man, if you're wrestling with this, you're probably, you're just not, you're probably not good enough to sit, sit in on Sunday, right? You're probably not good enough to, to serve with those people. You're probably, you're probably not good enough. You don't get it. You're probably not good enough to be on that serve team or to, to be a coordinator or a leader. You're probably not good enough to go help other people and tell them about Jesus because, I mean, let's face it, you don't really have it together yourself, right? You don't, you don't even understand everything that you're saying. That's a lie. It's a lie that's meant to immobilize you. It's a lie that's meant to keep you docile. It's a lie that's meant to keep you where you are so that the church cannot go forward. But the truth is that Jesus tells Peter, your name will be Cephas, which means rock. On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it because when the church is on the move, the forces of the enemy cannot stand. So he wants you to not be on the move. He wants a church that is passive. We're not called to be a church that's passive. We're called to be a church that is bold and courageous. And that says, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, I'm going forward. That's who you're called to be. You're called to be equipped and ready. The third thing that people object to is translation and transmission errors. Now, I said this, I think, in the first service. I just think this is the stupidest one. Um, The reason I say that is because it seems to me that it's so obvious. The Bible is actually the most... There's more copies of the Bible than any other book, and it's not even close. The second most is Homer's The Iliad. Um, There's a a few hundred copies of the Iliad, manuscripts, partial copies. There's actually zero complete copies of the Iliad, but nobody has ever looked back and said, oh, this is uh, a a fraud, right? The reason they hold the Bible to this standard is because they don't want to believe in the God who wrote it right, in the God who inspired people to write it. There's 5,700 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. There are complete copies, and we can compare them to each other to find the entire thing. There's no other document you can do that with, except for this book, the divine and inspired word of God. And in fact, the things that they point out as errors, they'll say, well, there's like 400,000 errors in the Bible. Did you know that? What they mean is that out of those 5,700 different manuscripts, you can pull and piece each of them apart. And even if some of the things that we recover, because when you recover things, you might recover all of it, or you might recover some pages of it, because we're talking about 2,000-year-old texts, right? And so uh, a page might have been deteriorated over time or this or that. Or also scribes will have copied things over and scribes will have made mistakes in copying things, whether it's the placement of a period or punctuation or something like that. 99% of these issues are what we call non-viable issues, meaning they have no impact on the text. That book I told you about, Case for Christ and Case for Faith, talks about this a lot. The punctuation, differences in spelling, and differences in word order and smudges, that's what those errors are. So when they give that number, they're trying to just throw a big number at you, and you know the purple-haired person on TikTok's like, yeah, well, you know, there's actually hundreds of thousands of errors in the Bible, and what she's saying is, look, I don't want you to focus on this, and let me say say this, Um, that's silly. When I copy a document over by hand from somebody else, it's going to look slightly different. Now, what I have is I have thousands of manuscripts that we can take and compare to each other. We can work them together, and we can see the entire document, and we have entire documents of it. So why? Why object? Because we don't want to face the reality that it's true. Because our hearts are opposed. That's why. We want to focus on the things that detract from the scripture. Here's what I want you to do. Next time someone says that to you, if you ever get in this, what I want you to do is I want you to say, assume everything that you're saying is true. Assume that the, the biggest stories, the biggest differences are true. What does it change? What does it change about the story of the word of God? What does it change about the gospel? Assume that you're 100% right. What does that change about 
What does that change about the God that's presented in it? Right? Does that God change? And the truth is no. The biggest and, and the biggest debate that I am aware of, at least, um, someone else can correct me if you want in the guest suite after service, but the biggest debate I have been aware of as I've followed apologetics for years is uh, there's a passage in, in John where the woman um, caught in adultery comes and Jesus comes and the, the, the religious leaders ask, what should we do with her? And he says, whichever one of you, uh, whichever one of you is blameless should cast the first stone. And this is a, a very um, important passage in scripture. And the very, very earliest handful of texts that we have, people will say, they'll say, well, we don't have that in, in these copies of this because they're partial texts. Um, and I would say, one, it's in there, you're wrong. Mo the vast, vast majority of the texts that we have do have that story. But this is the only major meaningful difference that they can hinge upon as they say, well, this story isn't here. And the, what we believe are the oldest ones don't have it. I don't think that's a very good argument. I don't think it's, it's good at all, actually. Um, I think it's silly because it's in a, it's, you can see it everywhere else. But you can just say, okay, assume that you are right. Assume that this major difference is correct. Assume that you are right. That wasn't in there and that the story got in there later somehow, some way. Say, assume that's all right. What does that change? And what do you think, by the way, about the Jesus who's in all of the other stories? What do you think about that Jesus? And the truth is they're using this as a smokescreen because they want to hide from the light. They don't want to see it. They want to focus on anything that gives them a defense so that we can turn a blind eye and look away. That's why. They want to assault the faith by whatever means are possible. Why do they want to do that? Well, because the Bible teaches us God's perspective. The Bible teaches us God's perspective. Um, when you pick up this book, when you read it and see everything that it has to say, you get to be taught the word of God, right? You get to be taught the word and to understand the word in the way that God has for you to understand it. It is living and active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates you to the deepest part of who you are. It gets in there and it changes you. And if it's going to change you, it might change them and it might change the people around them. Growth is not comfortable, but I promise you it is better. The life that I have with Jesus is much better than the life that I would have apart from him. And the fact is, I also have the greatest gift, which is eternal life through him. Proverbs 14.12 says there's a path for each, for each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Every person wants to look around and say, I can be on my throne, I can be God, this seems right to me, but that way ends in death. This word gives you life, it gives you God's perspective. Isaiah 45.9 says, What sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does a clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, Stop, you're doing it wrong. Does the pot exclaim, How clumsy can you be. What is this saying? It's, it's talking about the people who look at the word and they look at what it has to say and they say, God, you're doing it wrong. I want to be my own God. I think that you have it wrong here. Let me offer you some of my insight, God. Let me sit on the throne. That's the posture of all of our hearts naturally is God, let me sit on the throne of my life. The truth is that God sits on the throne of heaven. He offers you a choice. Are you going to choose him or are you going to choose to live a life apart from him? But a life when he's on the throne is much better. It's eternal. Your world will make more sense. And the Bible teaches us that. And the third thing, maybe the most important way that the Bible instructs us, is the Bible teaches us about Jesus. 
Now, like I said a second ago, the different Gospels tell the story a little bit differently, like I talked about with my testimony. In fact, if you go out to our table, you can get the, the listen daily, or you can get the uh, Bible in a Year plan, and, and you'll get the access, and you'll be able to do the listen daily 365, which is an audio version of the Bible, so that you can listen to it, and you can do the videos. And at the start of each start of each book, there's a great video that walks you through the historical context for this particular book so that you can see it better. So that's a resource. You can go get it. I did it this past year as well. Um, it's really great. I, I enjoy it. There's other resources like that that will help you uh, get an understanding for why each book is written, how it's written, right? But in John, the way that John helps frame the gospel for us to understand is John takes it all the way back to the beginning. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word already existed. When John says the Word, he's talking about Jesus. So when John says, in the beginning was the Word, what he's saying is, in the beginning, Christ was there. Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. He is the manifestation of God's Word sent forth to us, took on flesh to live in the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And in the beginning, he was already there. He's eternal because he's divine. And so he was already there. Jesus wasn't written in later. Jesus was there at the start, and the whole Bible points to his incarnation in the gospel. So in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. C.S. Lewis once said that Jesus is the light because he's the only thing you see in the darkness, and by him, you see everything else. What do I mean? I mean that when you have Jesus, it's like you're in a dark room and you can't see. But as you get closer to that light, and you hold it in your hand, you can see the light, but you can also see everything else because the light illuminates it and it gives you the ability to see around you. That's who Jesus is for us. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot extinguish it. You want to know the real reason that the enemy who is spiritual, you can go back and listen to our, our series on spiritual warfare if you'd like, the enemy who is spiritual and he prowls around like a lion seeking to devour you, and why your own heart, which is steeped in your own sin, if it hadn't been Adam, it would have been you, and it's also been you. If you don't think I'm right, look back at your own life, tell me you still don't think that. There's sin in your own heart. Why all of these things rage against the veracity of Scripture, why they don't want you to let the Bible instruct you, why, why oppose it with such silly arguments that intellectually are easily disproven? Why does the world rage against it? It's because of this. It's because the Bible tells you the story of Jesus. The story of Jesus is the gospel. And here's the gospel laid out really clearly. God created you to belong. When God put Adam in the garden, he gave to him his wife Eve because he said it's not good for man to be alone and God would walk in the garden with them. God created you to have belonging. But then this happens. Sin enters the world. Sin enters the world and it separates us from God. Romans 5.12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For everyone sinned. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Because 
because of the choice of Adam and the choice of Eve and the choice of you, you're broken and you're separated from God. But what's the, what's the one story? The one story that's woven over 1,500 years by 40 authors, all to preserve in this one book that is true, tells you the story of Jesus who was in the beginning. The Jesus who was there, the Jesus who is the Word, and who became flesh in the gospel. And he came so that you could have life because your sin was separating you from God and it was causing you death. But in Jesus, we can be brought back to God. Jesus brings us back because he came, he lived a perfect life, the word of God made flesh, lived a life for us and then became a sacrifice for us so that you can know God. He rose on the third day and defeated death and the grave to give you eternal life. And now the door is open, the way is paved, the bridge is laid. Romans 10.9 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The reason, the reason that anyone else wouldn't want you to have this book is because they don't want you to have the gospel. The enemy prowls around like a lion. He doesn't want you to have it. Your own heart wants to sit on the throne, but to know that Jesus gave you life means that you were broken and you needed a savior. But he does. He brings you back to God when you accept his gift. And he also brings us back to each other. Created to belong, separated by sin and death, brought back to each other and to God through Jesus Christ. John 1.12 says, To all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. What this means is that when you accept this gift of life, when you look at what this book is and you know that it's true and you believe what it says and you take the hard things, what you also find is that all the brokenness, all the pain, all the anguish that you have walked through all of the late nights crying, why God, I don't understand there's peace and life and light and his name is Jesus and you can find that by looking at this book. And there's an answer to all those things and that there's redemption. It means that if you lay your life down and you say, I'm not going to be the person on my own throne anymore. God, you're going to be on my throne. I surrender. When you get to that moment, of your wrestling with God and you say, I surrender to you. I might wrestle with things that I don't understand, but this moment I understand that you're God and I'm not, and you surrender, then in that moment, you cross from death to life. You have the ability to cross from the grave and become a new man, a reborn person, a birth that comes from God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen people, royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. Church, the truth is, the Bible is reliable. It shows you the way that God wants you to go. And it tells you the story of Jesus, which if you accept it, will change everything. If you will step out in faith and say, God, you're on the throne and I'm not, and you will take that first step, I promise you every step after it will be better. It doesn't mean your whole life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be good. Christians were burned at the stake. But it does mean that you'll have eternal life with the Father and that you'll know 
who you are in right relationship with who he is. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are grateful this morning to be among your people. Thank you, God, that your word instructs us. Thank you, God, that it is true. Thank you that it is reliable. Thank you for preserving it over the course of history, God, so that we could have it and so that we could know who you are. Thank you for giving us such wonderful evidence that we can rest our defense on of the faith and so that we can take it up and go out and tell others about the Christ who came to save us even while we were dead in our own sins. God, thank you for the fact that we didn't deserve your grace, but you gave it to us anyway. God, thank you that we can be here with each other and with you because of the gift of your son and because of the truth of what's in this word. Thank you, Lord, that it is faithful and that you are faithful. God, we love you. And we thank you that we're among your people this morning. I pray you would equip us, give us bravery as we go into this new year to be courageous, that we would not be a church that is silent, but a church that's on the move, that the gates of hell cannot stand against. It's in the name of Jesus, Father, that we pray all these things. Church, I'm going to ask that we keep our heads bowed and our eyes closed. We're going to remain in a posture of prayer. If you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing this and you're saying, this is the first time I've heard this, or maybe you've heard it so many times, but today you finally decided, I believe it. Or maybe you did believe it and you walked away. Or maybe you just want to submit and you just want to say, God, I give it all over to you. Whatever the case, if you are in any way, you're saying this morning, I'm far from God and I don't want to be. Whatever your story is, wherever you've come from, wherever you've been, there is a place for you in the family of God. To anyone who believes you've been given the right to be called a child of God. And so I, do, I just want to say, if you're here this morning and you hear that voice and that tug on your spirit that's saying, yes, I'm calling you into a relationship with me. We call that the Holy Spirit. And I want to tell you, that spirit, a spirit that calls you into right relationship with your Savior is not to be ignored. And so if you're sitting here today and that's you, whatever your story is, wherever you come from, I just want to say, I'm excited for you. And I want to invite you with every head bowed and every eye closed if you would just raise your hand. No one's looking around. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. Just raise your hand for me so I can pray for you. I see 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 you in the back. I see you. I see you in the front. You are never the only one. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For the heart of a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And then with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Is there anyone else who in this room you feel that before we go this morning, just so that we can pray for you. We're going to pray in a moment and encourage you, right? Anybody else who's saying, yes, God, I'm far from you. I don't want to be. I see you, man. I see you. Church, we're going to pray out loud, everybody together. If you raise your hand this morning, we're going to pray this prayer. And I want you to, I want you to just pray with my, my new brothers and sisters this morning. If you would, we're all going to repeat after me as we pray this so that we can encourage them into their faith. So we're going to pray, Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth, living a perfect life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I believe that you are God and I believe you're good. I believe that on the third day, you defeated death to give me life once and for all. And so today, with my own free will, I choose to make you my Lord, my Savior, and my King. Lead me and guide me and show me what's next. And all God's people said, 
Amen. Church, give it up for those people.